Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. Hey, everybody else, if you would just join me as I pray. Oh, powerful and gracious God. Lord, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I preach your word to your people. God, I ask that you would anoint me with holy unction for the preaching of your word. That you would loose my tongue so that I could speak clearly your word. And Lord, I ask that this word would not go out empty, but that it would bear transforming power in the lives of the people here. Oh Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son Jesus. Amen. I have spent huge portions of my life um, working on sermons in coffee shops. Uh, When you have small children in your house, those of you who've ever worked from home, small children do not make it easy to work from home. So you're constantly looking for places that you can go to to kind of get away. Uh, And so I've worked at McDonald's, I've worked at coffee shops, I've worked at Panera Breads, all kinds of different places. And invariably, the same thing happens every time. I get myself all kind of settled in, and I get to a good flow. And I'm just, I'm really, I'm really moving. I'm really getting stuff down on paper. And Somebody wants to talk to you. What you doing? Are, are you reading your Bible? What, why, why are you reading your Bible? And as a pastor, you feel this deep guilt because all you want is for this person to go away and let you finish your work. But the flip side is there is a, there's a requirement on all of us to be witnesses to the truth. And so when somebody gives you an opening like that, you take it. Now, I, I can remember being at one Starbucks, and I'm sitting there, and same thing happens, except this time the guy that came through the door was about six foot five, long, shaggy hair, big, long beard, and one of those yellow rain slicker coats. His name was, and I'm, and I'm not kidding you, I promise you this was his name. His name was Panther. And he was late to his court date. He had walked to Rosenberg from Rocheren, and if anybody knows where Rocheren is, you'll know that that's about 40 miles. That's a long walk. And he was trying to get to Fort Bend County Courthouse. And he was going around and saying, I need somebody to give me a ride. And I was like, don't look up. Just keep going. Don't look up. Don't look up at this guy. And he just kept getting closer and closer, and the spirit kept getting more and more insistent. And so finally I ended up giving this guy a ride, and he was every bit as crazy as what his name would imply. We had an adventure on the way from the Starbucks to the Fort Bend County Courthouse that I won't regale you with here. 
But in all of that, I was able to share the gospel with this man and to pray for him before his court date. It was a God-appointed moment in my day. And so often, the Christian life is taking advantage of those God-appointed moments for the glory of God. Right? This morning, we're studying one of these amazing God-appointed moments. Right? We, we read in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 8, we followed, chapter 8 is really uh, like a, a, a sub-book about Philip. Okay, and Philip, if you remember, is one of the deacons that was raised up, one of the, the solid Christian men that was raised up from the Hellenistic community to help them as they took care of the widows. Um, and each of these men went on to do some amazing things. Stephen was the first martyr. That's not necessarily amazing or something that you want, but he was still the first martyr, testified boldly for Christ before the Sanhedrin. Philip, on the other hand, is going to become an evangelist, and he's going to travel all over Judea and Samaria and preach the gospel. The last story in this chapter is kind of the culmination for Philip. We're not going to really see Philip again until much later in the book of Acts. But Philip has something amazing happen to him. If you remember, Philip had gone to Samaria and had an amazingly prosperous ministry there. He ministered in ways that as a pastor I could only dream of. He preached the word with power and had hundreds and thousands of people come to Christ. He worked mighty signs in the Holy Spirit. Men were healed. Demons were cast out. He even had a, a contest with a, with a local magician. We got to see that last week. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this amazing ministry, God comes and calls him away. We read in, in verse 26, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. Now for you to understand what's going on here, we kind of have to understand a little bit about the geography. He was up in toward kind of the central part of Israel in Samaria. He has this amazing, successful ministry. Uh, he's getting ready to settle into the business of, of ministering to God's people. They've come to Christ, and now he's teaching them. The apostles have come up and blessed them, and the Holy Spirit's come down, and it looks like things are going to be awesome. And then he has a vision. And visions from God... <laughs> are almost universally disruptive to our lives. Many of the most disruptive things that we see in the gospel begin with a vision of the angel of the Lord. If You can all think to Mary, who has her entire life turned upside down by a visit from an angel, or Joseph, whose life is turned upside down by the vision of an angel, or at the end... St. John, who sees the vision of the end times in heaven to open up in the Revelation. And here, Philip has a vision. And the vision, in the vision, the angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him to do something crazy. He says, leave your prosperous ministry here 
And we want you to go south of Jerusalem into the wilderness to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Now, Jerusalem is kind of in the southern part of Israel and Gaza is down on the coast, even further down. It's on the way from Jerusalem to Egypt. If you're going to go to Egypt, you end up going through Gaza. That's because you have to travel along the coast because that's where there's water. Now, there's two ways to get from Jerusalem to Gaza. There's a coastal route that has water, it's lush. Lots of people go down this road. If you're going to do evangelism on the road, you want to go on the road that goes by the sea. But that's not the road that the Spirit calls him to. He calls him to the other road, the older road, the one that goes through the middle of the desert, the road that virtually no one travels down. And this is the way of God. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to us and calls us to do things that make no sense. Doesn't make sense to pick up a homeless guy and take him to his court date. Doesn't make sense to go up to a perfect stranger on a bus and begin to converse with them. And yet those are the types of things that the Holy Spirit calls us to do. And so Philip being full of the Holy Spirit, responds to the call, leaves his ministry, and goes south. He goes south to this road. And lo and behold, something amazing happens. The road isn't deserted. There's somebody else on the road. There's actually quite a few people on the road. We read still in verse 27, and there was an Ethiopian a eunuch and a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, for you to understand how, how completely unusual this is, we have to kind of pick this apart because there's a lot of things going on in that verse describing what's happening. The first thing is that now Philip is in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness, and he comes across kind of this caravan. And the caravan is there to carry one man, a very important man, an Ethiopian. Now, to understand the Ethiopians, you need to understand that Ethiopia, at the time that this was written, was not what we would think of as Ethiopia or Eritrea on the kind of the horn of Africa. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is a country that was on the Nile River, north of, or sorry, south of Aswan. It was a country that we would consider to be Nubia, something like that, um, and it was considered at this time a very, very advanced alien culture. These were dark-skinned Africans that had a very advanced culture, and they lived kind of in communication with the Egyptians, but up the Nile River. Now, the Ethiopians um, were pagans. They worshipped their king, who they considered to be the sun god, okay, which is kind of like the Egyptians. So the king was the sun god, and he was kind of a, like a figurehead. The person that really ran everything was the queen mother. Right? Mama ran everything in that house. I know that's unusual for a lot of us. 
okay? But I want you to try, to try to put yourself into that place where mama's running everything. And they had a ritualized name for mama. Her name was Candace. Okay, and so this man that we're seeing is an Ethiopian who is an advisor to Queen Candace. He is her treasurer, the secretary of the treasury, the minister of the treasury for Queen Candace. Now, Ethiopia was a very rich kingdom, and so this was a very powerful position. But there's something else interesting about this man. See, he, not only is he an Ethiopian, a Gentile from a pagan culture, not only is he very high up in the government there, he's also a eunuch. That's kind of the dark side of the ancient governments. Often, they would be staffed with slaves that were castrated at a very early age. This brutal practice was done for a very important reason. See, when you were a king, you don't want to be surrounded by people who have families or who have children that might supplant you. A eunuch has no purpose in life except to serve their master. And so slaves would be castrated and they would be placed in over the, the royal harem or over the royal treasury and these men would grow in their rank and could become very, very powerful. But there's still yet more unique things about this man. We read that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this, this African Gentile from a pagan culture, this high court official, this eunuch, had somehow, in the process of his life, on the other side of the world, had become a God-fearer. He was searching for something. Searching so hard that he took the extreme journey all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to find and to worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible. I'll tell you, he must have been incredibly disappointed when he got there. Because see, at this time in Israel, you could not enter the temple if you were a eunuch. We read in Deuteronomy that all eunuchs are to be excluded from the gathering. They are on the outside of God's people. They are outcasts, blemished and broken. And so this man has traveled hundreds of miles to come to the temple of a God that he barely knows, only to be turned back at the gates and not allowed to worship. And now we find him on his return journey, sitting in his carriage and reading the book of Isaiah. This is who Philip finds when he goes to the nowhere place that no one should be. He finds a very special man in a very special place, in a very special condition in his life. We begin to see how God works in his sovereignty, tying all things together and moving all things for his glory. This is incredibly improbable. The odds against this kind of meeting are staggering. Except when we consider 
that God is fully sovereign. And this meeting had been in the plans from before the beginning of time. And so Philip, responding to the call of God, comes into the presence of this high court official. And the Spirit begins to work on him again. And we've all kind of experienced that before, where we're doing something that God wants us to do kind of grudgingly. And God's like, okay, but I want you to go a little bit further. We're like, all right, is it not enough that I walked into the middle of the desert for you? Now I have to go do this thing? What does the Spirit of God tell him? The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Now, you don't do this. Somebody like the treasurer to the queen of the Ethiopians, when they say they're traveling in a chariot, it's not what we're thinking about like a chariot. It's not a stand-up war chariot with four horses. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like a, like a carriage. He's sitting down. Somebody's driving the carriage. This guy would have had all kinds of people around him to keep people like Philip away. They would have had sticks, and their job would have been to beat the beggars away from the carriage. And now the Holy Spirit is telling Philip, hey, run up to this carriage. It'd be like running up to the limousine that the president's in. And being like, hey, I want to talk to you about some stuff. That's not advisable. If you're lucky, you'll get tased. But Philip follows the Spirit. He ran up to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Right? So... The eunuch is in his carriage, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah out loud. Now, I want you to understand, he's reading a scroll, and the scroll is handwritten. It's hard to read. It's hard to understand. Reading Isaiah translated into English in a printed Bible can be mind-blowing and confusing. Now, imagine reading it in Hebrew without punctuation or spaces between the words. And so he's working out the, the words verbally. And Philip runs up to him and asks him an incredibly insulting question, right? He says, do you understand what you're reading? But he, but he says it, you can't translate it in the Greek, you, you can't get it out of the Greek. It's this kind of play on words that, that kind of equates to, hey man, what you doing? What cheek, what effrontery. At this point, Philip should be beaten and thrown in the ditch. That's how this goes if you're anybody other than Philip under the leading of the Holy Spirit. But because he is Philip and he is under the leading of the Holy Spirit, the eunuch responds to him and says, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And then he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Philip is in a amazing place at an amazing time with an amazing person and something amazing has happened. God has worked all of these things together. He has pulled all of these strands together, all of these improbabilities together so that this man and the Ethiopian can be sitting in an open carriage discussing Isaiah. Now the passage from scripture he was reading was this, like a sheep 
He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears, he was silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch is confused about this, as many of us would be reading this. See, the the eunuch is reading Isaiah for a very important reason, I think. This man who has traveled all the way to Jerusalem only to be turned away from the temple is reading the one book in the Bible that holds out the most hope for those who are eunuchs. See, while Deuteronomy tells us that eunuchs will be cast out from the camp and will be separated from the people of God, Isaiah describes how in the coming day of the Lord that the eunuchs will be given offspring and blessing and a monument of honor. That this man who could not come into the presence of God will one day be made whole and be allowed to come into the presence of God. And you've got to believe that this is speaking to his heart. That this is filling this gap that he has, this deep desire to know God as he reads about a time that he will come to be able to know God. And as he reads through this book, as he's, you can just see he's devouring this book, trying to drag from it all of the solace and the care that he can. As he reads through it, he comes to this enigmatic passage about the man of sorrows. Now, we call these passages the servant songs. These are the passages in the book of Isaiah that describe the suffering servant of God who will be tortured and broken They're very enigmatic because the Jews didn't understand what they meant. They didn't know who they were referring to. And so the eunuch asks Philip this question that he's heard the rabbis talking about. He says, and whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this is about? Is it about himself or someone else? Is Isaiah talking about himself as a suffering servant? Or is he predicting a suffering servant? And this is the opening. This is all of the strands that have been drawn together that have created this opening so that Philip the evangelist can do what he does best. We read, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with these, with this uh, scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That that language there, we've, we've heard that before in the Gospel of Luke. I'm sorry. We've heard that before on the road to Emmaus. We read that Jesus comes to two men. They don't know who he is. And it says that he opened his mouth and beginning with the prophets, he told them about everything that had to happen. See, there's an opening that's been made For the gospel. Philip has been obedient to the Holy Spirit and now God has opened a doorway for him to be able to come in and be able to preach the gospel to this man who's desperately hurting and desperately needs it. And Philip fills that gap. Philip is able to go from this felt need that the man has and begins to tell him about who the suffering servant is. How how it's the man of sorrows. 
the Messiah who had to die for the sins of the world. And we have this image of Philip beginning to tie these scriptures together, weaving these stories into the picture of the gospel that transforms our lives. I don't know if anyone here has ever seen that done, but it's beautiful. When the scriptures are opened and the symmetry is, de is demonstrated and we begin to see that it is not just separate stories, but it's one story with Jesus as the point, with threads of grace and atonement and judgment and justice woven throughout the whole. And this man who comes into contact with the gospel, somewhere along the road he's changed. His heart that has been crying out for God, desperate for God, like a, like a man in the desert, desperate for a drink of water. When he comes into contact, he's changed. He's changed to the point that he asks Philip if he can be baptized. He, he, he says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And the answer is absolutely nothing. This man has come to saving knowledge of Christ. And there is water in the middle of the desert. And Philip is there. And they go down to the water. And this man is immersed. Now, now, we have a couple of interesting things here that I, that I just want to point out very quickly. If you look in your Bible, you will see that most, if you have a, a, a modern translation, I'm using the ESV, it goes from 36 to 38. Okay? That's because verse 37 involves a profession of faith that this man makes that we don't find in any of the earliest and best manuscripts. So most Bibles leave it out. Now, this doesn't mean that it's bad or that it's wrong. It just means that it probably wasn't in the letter that Luke wrote. But the profession of faith was probably something that was used widely during the early church in the baptism ceremony. And so as we look at it, it's important to see that when we baptize someone at the front, I ask them those questions. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and do you trust in him only for your salvation? And the Ethiopian eunuch can respond, yes. Yes, I can. He's been changed. His life has been altered. And as they come up out of the water, in one last amazing occurrence... We read, And we came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and this, the eunuch saw him no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. Amen. This incredibly impromptu moment in the middle of the desert as this eunuch is leaving his disappointment at the temple, he finds a strange man 
who answers all the questions that he's been asking and tells him much more to aside. This man who draws him to a place where he can accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and then takes him down and baptizes him has disappeared. What must that eunuch have been thinking? This is an angel. The Lord has sent somebody to me to change me. And he'd be right. Because Philip was sent by the Lord. The Lord who had worked all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose had worked all things together for the good of this Ethiopian eunuch that his life would be transformed, that he would go on to be an evangelist to his nation. But see, there's another side to this. See, God is fully sovereign in everything that is happening in this entire story. And yet Philip, Philip must obey. Philip is used by God because Philip allows himself to be used by God. And so we see this, this, these two sides of the story where God works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And yet at the same time, how will they know if no one tells them? And who will tell them if no one goes? Brothers and sisters, we live in a time and in a place where we are told constantly that evangelism for Christians has dropped off. We are told constantly that we're failing in our duty to evangelize. Where it takes 80 Christians to make one new convert. Or if the statistics are right, most everyone in this room will go several years before they invite anybody to church, let alone share the gospel. But we need to understand is that Philip was effective as an evangelist because he allowed the Spirit to guide, direct, and empower him. Right? Philip wasn't a magic man. Philip wasn't some kind of superhuman guy. Philip was a normal person like you and I who was used in an amazing way by the Spirit. Now, we've seen this over and over again through the book of Acts. In fact, this is probably one of the major themes of the book of Acts is that we, normal people, can be used in amazing ways when we allow the Holy Spirit to move within us. See, effective evangelism is still a spirit-directed endeavor. Somewhere we got the idea that evangelism was the job of an elite group of trained evangelists. Somewhere we got the idea that evangelism was a science and that if you could get the right cadence and the right rhythms and you knew the right words and you were convincing enough that you could create Christians under the power of your charisma. And that if you don't have that, if you're not Billy Sunday or you're not Billy Graham, then you need to leave this alone to the professionals. Now, Billy Graham 
was an amazing man. And Billy Sunday saw thousands of people come to Christ. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But brothers and sisters, that is not the way that God works in the majority of the cases. The majority of the cases, Christians are brought to a knowledge of Christ by well-meaning people responding to the Word of God. See, we have developed a view of the gospel that is so complex and hard to believe that only specialists can share it. And the result is that we evangelize less and less because we believe that you have to have the ability to turn another person into a Christian when the reality is God is sovereignly in control. He weaves all of these things together in the same way that he wove everything together for that Ethiopian eunuch. Amazing occurrence after amazing occurrence so that just the right thing happened at just the right point so this man could hear the gospel when he was the most ready to hear it. And he was transformed. Every time we come to Christ, it is because something that spectacular has happened. Everyone here who has had the honor to share the gospel with somebody has seen that. As a hard heart transforms. As amazing occurrences happen. As you meet somebody on the street. And you have a conversation with them. And that conversation turns into the presentation of the gospel. And this person accepts Christ. It's heady stuff. Brothers and sisters, in order for the church to regain its evangelistic power, we must be guided and empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit. We have to understand that evangelism is not something for an elect group of people now, I need you to understand this. There are skills that go into evangelism. There, there are things that we need to know. But these things are not coercion or persuasion or manipulation. This isn't showmanship. It's not put them on the front row and play that song another couple of times until this person gets so antsy that they hop up. That's been a major part of revivals for a long time. The anxious pew. Now, the skills that we need to present the gospel involve learning how to apply scripture to the felt needs of the seeker. Just like Philip did. Philip took this man's esoteric question about an obscure passage in the book of Isaiah and used it to drive straight into that man's heart and tell him the things that he needed to hear. This doesn't mean that we become the Bible answer man. It does mean that we understand Scripture holistically and systematically. That means we understand the whole story of Scripture. And we understand these different threads and how they tie together. So how do you do that? How do you gain that knowledge? Go to Sunday school. I mean, I'm being serious here. This isn't just the church answer, right? 
Our Sunday school is developed to do that. We use a Sunday school curriculum that teaches scripture from beginning to end and ties it together with the major themes. If you want to become good at evangelism, you need to understand your Bible. And you don't understand your Bible if you don't study it. Brothers and sisters, we have all kinds of opportunities for you to come together and study the Bible here. We have Wednesday night Bible studies for men. We have three Bible studies for women. We have Sunday school groups for literally any demographic. I can offer these things to you. What I can't do is make you go. You have to want to go. You have to want to develop the knowledge that you will need to be able to respond when that opening comes. Another skill set that you can acquire is apologetics. That just means being able to answer some of the hard questions that seekers ask. Stuff like, well, why did a good God create pain? Those are the kind of questions that if we're really honest with ourselves, it makes us go, ah, I don't know. They're not easy answers, but there are ways that as Christians we can answer those. There's ways that we can take those questions that go to felt needs in that person's life. Somebody's asking that question, why do you think that is? Probably because they're in the midst of pain. How can a good God create evil? Well, that question comes from the fact that a person has just endured evil. Where is God in the midst of my struggle? That happens. That question is asked because the person is in the midst of struggle. And so having apologetics, being able to answer some of these questions, and then tie these things back together, these are all skills that we need to have. Probably the most important skill is being able to give an effective testimony. This is probably the simplest and most effective thing that you can do as you seek to evangelize to the people around you. Show of hands, who here has ever given their testimony? Okay. Let me tell you something. Was it easy? No. First time I gave a five-minute testimony, it took 20 minutes. I rambled. Brother, I rambled. I didn't know what to say. I just kept going, ah. It's like, it felt like it was the great American novel. There I was, a small boy, growing up in the hills outside of Houston. There are no hills outside of Houston, by the way. The more we give our testimony, the easier it becomes. The more the rhythms we get down, the more we can convey to people what God's done in our lives. Brothers and sisters, this isn't optional. Right, first Peter tells us that we need to stand ready to give an account for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. If we have hope in our heart because God has changed us, we need to be able to explain to people why we have that hope. But I want you to hear me. The most important skill for evangelism is not a knowledge of the Bible, and it's not apologetics, and it's not the ability to give a good testimony. The most important skill that you need to be able to share the gospel is obedience. Because obedience is what is going to take you out of the comfortable place that you are and drive you into the uncomfortable circumstances that lead to people being converted. Bible knowledge and a grasp of apologetics is good, but those skills are always secondary to the calling and enabling of the Holy Spirit. 
If you want to be successful at evangelism, you need to be willing to respond to the call of God to speak to people that you wouldn't normally speak to. It means being open to the Spirit, to the people around you, when they come and they ask awkward or weird questions. It means actively praying that God will give you opportunities to share your faith. And it means being willing to be rejected by people that you want to impress. I can't tell you how many times I have not shared my faith because I was afraid of the ridicule of people who I wanted to like me. And every time I leave knowing that I failed. I failed God and I failed them. But listen, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how many times you failed in the past. It doesn't matter how many times you've ignored the call of the Holy Spirit because today, today, God is offering you the ability to become new again. Every day, we have the opportunity to be made new again. Every day, we have the opportunity to step out in faith and do the things that God has called us to do. Successful evangelism is the product of God's sovereign power mediated through willing people doing crazy things because God called them and told them to do it. And so I'm going to tell you today, I'm going to ask you, what is God calling you to do? What crazy thing is he calling you to do? What person is he calling you to talk to? Are you going to respond it doesn't matter what happened yesterday. And it doesn't matter what happened last week. As you leave this place, make the commitment that you are going to say yes to the Holy Spirit. The way Philip did. But I warn you, saying yes to the Holy Spirit is a dangerous thing. One of my favorite books is The Hobbit. And there's a line in The Hobbit It says, it's a dangerous thing walking out of your front door in the morning. Because you never know where that path may take you. It could be just down the hill or it could be to the other side of the world. And when you start saying yes to God, when you start responding to the Holy Spirit, God starts doing amazing things. Let's embrace those amazing things. Some of you do not know the Lord. Some of you have never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ. And the first step down that amazing trail, the first step down that amazing road that can lead anywhere and result in anything is the first step that we take in faith as we respond to the call that God has placed on our lives. Just as God had pulled all things together, as he'd worked all things together for the good of that Ethiopian eunuch that he was calling into relationship, you have been called to this place today. God has worked all things together this morning. You didn't want to get up out of bed this morning. Your car didn't want to start this morning. You didn't have the right breakfast this morning. That car almost swerved ahead of you, cut you off and put you in an accident, but it didn't happen because you're here for a reason. You are here because God is calling you into relationship with him. He stands at the door and he knocks. Will you answer it?
I pray that you would. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. As our band comes up here to prepare to play the song, I would ask you, is the Lord calling to you today? Is he speaking to you? If he is during this time of invitation, I'd ask you to come forward. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we will tell you how you can have a relationship with him. If you don't have a church, we will tell you how you can join this one. If you are just in desperate need of prayer because you don't know where to turn, we will pray with you. Whatever you do this morning, I pray that you would respond to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ on your life. Now please join me as I pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.